Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by actor Porna Jagannathan. You've likely seen her in television shows like Big Little Lies, Rami, The Night Of, or in films like Deli Belly or Share by director Pippa Bianco. Most recently, she's a central character on the internationally popular Netflix series Never Have I Ever. Inspired by creator Mindy Kaling's childhood, It centers its narrative around a first-generation Indian teenage girl growing up in America. Jagannathan, in her work, plays the role of the widowed mother who must raise her daughter alone. Here's a clip from season two. I am so, so sorry I lied to you, Devi. How could you move on so quickly? I haven't moved on at all. I, I, I miss your father so much that it physically hurts. I guess I just wanted a break from that pain. But I promise you, it is over now. Are you the only one around here who gets to make these rash decisions? It's just, I feel like Dad's disappearing from our lives. I had all of his voicemails on my phone, but they're gone. And someone was too cheap to pay for the cloud. I refuse to pay for something invisible. What if I forget what Dad sounds like? (sighs) You'll never forget that, Goody. 
Your father will always be a part of you. The hit Netflix original is revolutionary in its presentation. It offers three-dimensional portraits of Southeast Asian men and women, characters that are more flawed and human than previous American programming allowed them to be. It's why so many people have seen themselves in the cast of characters, especially in Porna's work. Now, before we get into this, some housekeeping. What's happening right now in Afghanistan is something worth paying attention to. I'm not going to give my opinions on the subject or the decisions made by the Biden administration. What I know is that it doesn't take a whole lot to feel something for the men, women, and children stranded in a situation they did not choose. We are going to cover this subject on the show in the months ahead with people qualified to talk about it. If you have the time and means, I'd encourage you to seek out the reporting of George Packer in The Atlantic this week. He published a few pieces that I think effectively detail what's happening and how the hell we got here. I'd also, if you can, consider a donation to the International Rescue Committee. Their website is www.rescue.org. That's www.rescue.org. Secondly, I want to offer a warning. Around the 25-minute mark, we get into a violent crime committed in Delhi back in 2012. You may remember the story. It made national headlines. It is upsetting material and an event that propelled Miss Jagannathan into making a personal piece of theater called Nirbhaya. This was a difficult conversation to have, but one I think we both felt was worth having. So I thank her for coming on this show. I thank you for listening to it. And now, here is Purna Jagannathan. Purna, thank you for being here. This is the first podcast we've done in the flesh in our studio since March of 2020. So I'm anxious. Are you? I'm used to looking at a Zoom screen. Not that that's any better. No, I am too. This is wonderful. (laughs) It's really nice to see you up close. You make it seem like we've seen each other before. Well, I've seen pictures of you, but I thought this was going to be a Zoom session too. I know I was coming somewhere, but I Mm -hmm. I thought you'd be somewhere else. So how are you doing? I'm wonderful. I spent five weeks in New York. I just got back two days ago to L.A. It's amazing being home. And I used to live in New York for many, many years, and I always considered that home. And suddenly that dynamic completely shifted, and it's just great to be back here. Now, you made Never Have I Ever here. Yeah. I wanted to start with this because for the first time in making this show, you felt like you had the space to be yourself on set while making it. It also happened to help that you live here too. Can we start with that first day on set of working on a show like this? That first day is much like every day. And the best way to explain it is is there is a feeling of continuous self, which is you don't have to drop who you are at the door and walk into a set. You just bring all of you to every scene, to every line. You bring all your experiences. And it's a very empowering set because they're always 
ready for improv and always ready for your suggestions. And like even in the writing phase, you know, the feedback loop is always open. Like the night off, there's something that you shoot and then the way it lands on people and that becomes part of the process as well. And that becomes part of the experience as well. So, you know, the fact that we were surrounded by so many brown talent and brown directors and brown writers and, you know, so many people of color and that didn't quite hit until much later. I just remember looking out and there is a sea of brown talent in front of me and just realizing that's never happened before in my life. I've never experienced that and what that feels like. And it didn't feel like it just felt like home. You said that working on this show, you're bringing all of your experiences into that. And I think it's worth kind of diving into some of those experiences for you because I wanted to go back to you around the age of 30. You're doing advertising before that. And somewhere along the way, you decide that if I don't make a real go at this, this being acting, then it may never happen. Where were you at in that moment when you decided to do this? I was at an agency called Ogilvy and May there, Ogilvy. And I couldn't pronounce that either. <laughs> I, you know, I've always been really lucky in advertising. I've always really had the best. I've just had the best clients. I had the best accounts. I had the best bosses. I just had a great time there. But the thing is, you know, there I I was checked out in a in a really intense way. I just felt like I couldn't go into work. I couldn't get there on time. I couldn't wait for Friday. So much anxiety on Sunday. I just had everything great, and yet it didn't feel like anything. It tasted like mud. My boss, her name was Jill, she was so sweet. She took me aside and she was like, I'm worried about you. I'm just worried, like, are you doing drugs? What are you What are you doing? How can we help? I was so checked out, and I never want to get promoted. Like, it was my worst thing. It's just that. I just had a great situation, but I had no joy. And yet, I, you know, on the weekend, I'd take these adult acting classes um, in the city. I was in New York at that time. And, oh, my God, that would be so much joy. And I'd look forward to that eight-hour, you know, Saturday and eight-hour Sunday class. And it was just that. It was like, what if you took the leap and did something that gave you tremendous joy? This, it may or may not work out, but I definitely felt at 30 was a seminal, like, you do it now or you don't get to do it again. When you do make the leap... You don't tell your parents. No. How do you know this? <laughs> what is going on? I invited you out to Highland Park. It's a trek. It's a trek. You think I'm going to bring you out here <laughs> and be like... I just don't tell people that. That's funny. No, my parents actually didn't know of anything. You know, it's not that my parents are strict, but I, I always know it, especially when I was a kid, if I told them something, they'd say, no, 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 you can't do that. So I just learned along the way just to do it and not, like, check in or tell anyone. So acting was definitely one of those things where I was so interested in something, but I didn't think they'd forget understanding. Like, oh, I don't expect any understanding, but they would actively oppose it. So I just, you know, you just go try something. Go do it and, and see what happens. And then if it's okay and it turns out okay, they may hear of it. So when you asked your parents if you could do something growing up, they would say no. No. If it was involved any level of risk. Even though your father's a diplomat. Yeah. And spending a lot of time traveling throughout your childhood. Yes. Which seems to me like someone taking risks. Am I off on that? 
Uh, no, my father was a huge risk taker. And they did. Like, they they were like, oh, you know, we live so far away from school. And they were like, oh, you can figure out. You can take the bus and the train and then walk and then, you know, hitchhike. They were just like, you know, there were some areas, there were a lot of risks in some areas when it came to going out or trying something out of your comfort zone or trying something a little off the beaten path. They, they're just risk averse. You know, instead of asking, you just do. And then if you get caught, then you figure it out. <laughs> So you do it. You don't ask for permission. Yeah. What happens in New York in the early 2000s? Because you go to the actor studio drama school at Pace University. You drop out after a year. You take up a mentorship with Elizabeth Kemp. Where did you find your footing there? Or how did you find it? Uh, I went back into advertising. You know, I'm, I'm a complete immigrant. It's really hard to dive into the arts without a plan B. So I had to start my own advertising brand consulting. You know, I did that up to 2016. So I was doing both at the same time. And I got lucky enough to get a manager and agent really early on in drama school. And so you just get these tiny, tiny, tiny gigs. I mean, there's a, an amazing casting director called A.B. Kaufman. And my trajectory of my career is very much based on on her, like the first non-speaking part was with her and this first line was with her and the first scene, the first full page, the first recurring, the first series regular. Um, so it's just these like few casting directors who believe in you and take a risk on you and take a chance on you. Your manager and your agent, you meet them the same night at a performance. What do you remember about that moment? You know, I think so much of my career, especially Never Have I Ever, maps the trajectory of what is happening to South Asians in the industry as well as South Asian women in the industry. And a slow opening up of the conversation around diversity, which was, I literally was just opening up back then. I think both my agent, Paul, my manager, Lori, both at that time just saw there were these small roles that were being offered to South Asian women that they hadn't seen even a year or two years ago. You know, I don't think either of them had South Asian clients at that time. And it, it, it was, it, and of course, it, they saw something in me, but they saw something against a backdrop of something, you know, prior, years earlier, I had been auditioning to try and get into acting. So I just didn't know how to act. So I was like, oh, I should go to school for it. And I had been auditioning at, at schools for it, and I couldn't get in anywhere. There, there was no market. So when someone sees you, they're like, mm, she's okay, but there's nothing, there's no trajectory for them. So the industry was just opening up to people who looked like me a little bit. And they, um, they were my agent, my manager for many, many years. You know, they just always, they always saw something. Did you see something in yourself at that point? That's a really good question. I've always loved this notion of performing. A lot of times I didn't know what that meant. No? What? Oh, I thought you were going to ask me a question. I, well, I was going <laughs> to... Now I'm reluctant to bring up anything in your past because... Please do. It's no, so exciting. No, I was like, but, how no, did he know no, that? Well, it's this, very exciting. No, this one's going to be weird. I, I already know. Go I, for it. No. I, I, oh, no. Now you can't put it out there and not say it. I wonder if that excitement around performing if that really starts for you at age six. Oh, yes. Yes, I totally remember the story. I can't remember your life better than you can. It's so incredible. First of all, thank you for researching in a way that no one has. I think I was maybe, yeah, you're right, like five or six, and 
my uncle took me to someone's house who I, it's, I, I think he's a, a, a producer and he had a daughter who was an actor and I fell in love with her. Like I, you know, we were, we were there for tea one evening in Chennai and I think I stayed about eight days in her house with her and like totally just drawn to her and I can't even explain why and I went to set with her and I saw her perform and I uh, you know we drove to set in her ambassador which is a very particular car and I it was tinted I, I don't I can't describe what it was but it was something about who she remains to be and who she is and how there was a scene where it, it was an emotional scene and someone was leaving or something was happening and they asked her if she wanted glycerine. She's like, no, I got this. And she was like crying at this incredible, I didn't even understand the scene because it was in Tamil at that time. And then I met her at 36 at a film festival. And I'm like, you're not going to remember me. My name is Purna. And she's like, I was just speaking about you this morning. We just had this weird, incredible bond. Her sister did live in Ireland, uh, where I lived at that time. And so I had a very thick Irish accent. And and I think she just, I don't know, there was something. I'm not going to ask you to do it. No, I can't do it. I can't. <laughs> it went away a while back. So, you know, I think there was a bit of familiarity. I, I don't know what we had in common, but we still have it in common. So in the mid-2000s, you see her again. At that point, you've worked a little bit. You've had bit roles on a scattering of shows. What is it like to be an actor in that period? In retrospect, it, it was just because I had a career in advertising. There was there was always this like, okay, if this doesn't work out, I can always go back to that. And by this, I mean if the stories don't get fleshier, I, I can't keep doing this. I, I can't risk everything to be a doctor on a show where the doctor's you know, just delivering good news or bad news. Like, there's no flesh around roles. I just felt like such a betrayal of myself and my community and who I am, my experiences by showing up for these role, for these particular roles. And I think I probably would have quit acting if it was still stuck in that rut. But I did get a film called Delhi Belly out of India really totally randomly. That was really helpful for me and my career. Can you explain the story of how you got this movie. I was, I don't, I don't gamble and I don't play blackjack. But I was at a fundraiser and I was so bored. I thought you were going to say drunk. I don't really, I stay away from drinking because I get drunk so fast. It's just like getting on top of the table, dancing drunk in like half a glass of something. It's really? It's really not great for me. <laughs> or it used to be, but just not anymore. It used to be great for you? It used to be a good time. Yeah. It's not anymore. So I was playing blackjack and the winner of, you know, of the person who got, I really don't even know the terminology, but the, there was like a whole gambling thing. And I guess I won the most amount of any gambler that night on a game. I have no idea what I was doing. By the way, as a gambler. Oh, what? Um, It's always people like you <laughs> that are like, yeah, I just showed up. I don't know the rules and I won. <laughs> I wasn't wealthy, but I did get two round trip tickets to India as a prize. And so we went and we went around a, a cousin, my cousin Deepa's wedding. And then uh, when I was there, I met a friend of mine from New York. I call Arjun Basin, who is a really amazing costume designer. And he's like, I'm designing this film. I think there may be a part of part for you. And so he makes a phone call. I think I go and audition the next day. 
But sometimes in your life, and you can, and this happened with the night off and happens with Never Have I Ever, you just get these sides, which is just like two or three pages of, of the script. That's all you have. And if you get the part or you don't get the part, there is something that fits. And so these, you know, these sides, these few pages just fit. It was, and it remains to me one of the funniest scripts I have ever read in my entire life. It's by an L.A.-based writer called Akshat Verma, and it was just my sense of humor, which is very, you know, scatological and a little dark and a little twisted and a little weird. What were the scenes? We were in a hotel room, and we were running away from my ex-husband, who is chasing us. It's a car chase, and he's chasing us with a gun. And we run into the lobby. I just, like, see this hotel, you know, the, the room in the hotel is open. Someone's cleaning. I tell her to leave, and then... Me and this guy have a conversation, and I explain who this who this person chasing us is, and the owners of the hotel room come in, and I have to get on top of him and pretend we're having sex. That was the scene, and just by sheer luck, again, this whole project is like one lucky thing after the other. One of my very good friends was also auditioning that day, a guy called Samrat, so... I asked the casting director if I could audition with Samrat, and she said yes. And so I auditioned with my best friend, and it was okay to get on top of him and fake hump him. And <laughs> as soon as they saw that, they were like, okay, let's go. Let's do this. Well, it's significant, too, because many people audition for the part, but they wouldn't do... They stopped right before that, yeah. Could you explain the significance of that? Like, why was that? taboo or why was that something that was crossing a line for some people it's hard because it wasn't cross it was the funniest part of the scene for me right yeah you know of course it's it's like an indian production and a lot of things are taboo including getting you know mounting a guy and humping him and there was a kissing scene where we used tongue and that was like a huge thing using tongue using tongue was a huge thing they have a very intense censorship situation going on and in very intense boundaries. And a lot of films have since broken that and, you know, pushed the boundaries. And in our film, Delhi Belly, there was a cunnilingus scene. There was this scene. There was kissing. So uh, just physically, it definitely pushed against sensibilities. I wonder for you, why wasn't it a step too far? Oh, that? Yeah. <laughs> no. Oh, no, that's totally within my wheelhouse. Exactly, but yeah, yeah. where does that come from? Oh, I've never thought of that. No, I, I think that is very much my sense of humor. It's totally inappropriate. You haven't done that much of it here. Right. I'm trying to grow up a little bit. <laughs> Don't start on this show. <laughs> when you decide to do this movie, mm -hmm. you, your husband, your child, leave America, move to India, to have this kind of career in Bollywood. And the more I read about Bollywood, the less I understand about it. So I'm curious if you could walk us through your experiences there, but also how it works, because many people don't know. There's parts of Bollywood are just amazing. There's parts of India, you know, there's a, a, a term called Jugaad. Like you walk through the streets of Old Delhi, there's a place called Chandni Chok, and no one has electricity, but everyone has electricity because there's a main line and everyone has puts wires connected to the main line and runs them into their house. So instead of the sky, you just see this crisscross of wires all over. And that's kind of like it's an amazing cultural thing. You just make things happen. You just piece things together. You beg, borrow, steal. It's, it's just Nothing is impossible. Everything can happen. And, and Bollywood also embodies that wonderful spirit. 
by the time I got to Bollywood, I was 40, a mom. I don't speak Hindi with any sort of fluency that's appropriate for a Hindi film. While here, I was the the serious, you know, the model minority role, the the doctor, the nurse, the lawyer. There I was the wanton American woman, you know. It was going, jumping from one stereotype into the other, and it was, uh, it's, it's, a, it's hard to break out of that. I don't look like a Bollywood actress. I'm sure a lot of actors have curly hair, but, you know, there's one actress there that I know just has curly hair. I don't have a body that's typically considered Bollywood, Nothing about me is Bollywood. And so I felt that right away, even though I thought Delhi Belly was the start of a new genre and the start of something. It was actually the end. It was the beginning and the end. There's no other movie that's been made like that. Although on one hand, it was really exciting. There were parts of it that remain toxic. What does that mean? I think their idea of what is feminine can be toxic. The fact that only now writers are given the any kind of credit I'm trying to choose my words carefully here. I know. Why is that? Well, I'm trying to understand what part of it felt so toxic. I was totally felt stifled. I felt totally out of place even more than I felt in America. There was a standard of beauty that felt so myopic. And so you'll see across the board, all the top actresses are very, very white. Very, very white. And all the actors in independent cinema and all that have, you know, are, are kind of darker shades. There's this whole like big boob, big butt situation going on. Acting is, you know, it's wonderful to have talent, but not really, you know, not that important. And yet, you know, I, I would say a lot of the very top talent uh, actors, there is definitely a fair degree of nepotism going on, like all the Again, top actors and actresses, with some exceptions, come from film families. It's just hard to get your foot in the door, and it's really hard for an outsider to get their foot in the door. So you left America to work in India, yeah, thinking, I'm leaving this narrow understanding of who I am in America. To go to an even narrower, yeah. Not knowing that it would be narrower. No, I thought it had opened up. I really did. Was that destabilizing for you? I went back into advertising. I was like, this is not going to work out. Insurance plan. <laughs> My plan B. Yeah, I went back into advertising. And I also decided that I wasn't going to do Bollywood anymore. Like, that's it. It just like, I just remember a casting director who was so caring and loving was like, nah, you gotta, you gotta straighten your hair out. It's not going to work out. Curly hair is just... It's a thing, because when you have curly, uh, growing up, curly hair just meant you were like like a loose woman. It has just things of being unruly. Like, I just grew up with so much shit around curly hair. There's just people who just wanted you to fit into a mold that I had finally broken out of, and I had no desire to go back in there. Anyway, so I, I was like, okay, I'm not going to do Bollywood. If I do anything, it's going to be out of the States. And then I'm just going to go to the States and... Do advertising, you know, so once every six months, I'd, I lived in India, but I was coming back and doing gigs in advertising. And when the night off happened, I was living in India. I was commuting back and forth from India. You started laughing mid-sentence. What happened? Well, I just remember, like, there was really no money. And I just remember taking the cheapest flights. But it was that. It was like, I'm not going to say yes to a script that I don't love. And I did not say yes. 
Uh, oh, I did say yes once. Like I was like, oh my, I was just telling my son the story yesterday. I was like, oh my God, the script is amazing. What? This, uh, this woman came, she out of nowhere, and she's like, I want you to play this. And I read the script. It was fantastic. And I said, yes. And then it turned out the whole thing was plagiarized. It was Donnie Brasco's, and they, she, she, she changed it to Indian names. So that was like the level of insanity that I was dealing with. Like she just changed the name. <laughs> That's the weirdest part. And it was discovered in the States when they were pitching it to Fox. Some intern is like, this is a lot like the Donnie Brasco. And it was like, no, that's impossible. After that, I was like, I'm out. <laughs> I'm just out. We'll be right back after a quick break. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new, data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the Customer Experience category at the Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. 
Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, you start working on a play. Yeah. December 16th, 2012. There's this case that makes headlines. I bring this up because uh, you sent an email at five in the morning to the director, Yael Farber. Do you remember this email? Yeah, it was a Facebook message. On, you know, so it was December 17th that we heard of it, but on December 16th, there was a, a violent gang rape. Um, of this young um, medical student called Jyoti Singh Pandey. And she had, um, you know, th- that evening on the 16th, she had watched Life of Pi with a friend and got on a bus to go home. The bus was a trap, and there were, God, I want to say six, yeah, six men on it. And they had set out to rape someone. That was that was, that was was their night. Guy had had a, one of the guys had a, had a school bus, so they you know, drove around trying to pick someone up. And uh, she and her uh, male companion got on that that bus. And so the morning after when the news broke of her brutal gang rape, and it was really so brutal that, like, her intestines were, she didn't have any intestines at the end of it. It's so hard to say what is a tipping point because the same level of brutality happens so often. Uh, George Floyd is brutally murdered and has been brutally murdered before, but there was something about George Floyd, there's something about a Tunisian food seller that set off the Arab Springs, and there was something about Jyoti Singh's Pandey case that just completely tore the nation apart. It was impossible to to breathe the next day. We, we literally, as a nation, came to a standstill when we heard about the case. It was, of course, hugely brutal, but she was also just... Any one of us, like I've, she she got onto a uh, on a bus stop that was opposite my house where I grew up. Like that's the that's the bus she got up. I mean, we have all been that. Like we felt as a nation that all of us could have been that girl on the bus, right? The streets were just rose in protest right away. And sexual violence in India is an epidemic, like it is here in the states. The statistics are horrifying. It's you know one in two children are sexually assaulted, which doesn't even account for. The amount that are not reported. Correct. No one talks about it. And there's so much shame that is placed that you you are kind of just shamed into silence. So there's this whole, there's this agreement that we're not going to talk about it and yet this epidemic happens. And so what was happening is, of course, we were all, we were all um, shocked and we were all torn apart. But what really started tearing apart all our silences. So all of us, you know, started coming out with our own stories. I had been sexually assaulted at nine. I'd never told anybody, and I'd never uh, spoken about it publicly for sure. 
And yet, when this event happened, there was such an intense feeling of complicity. There's no other way to explain it except that it felt like an epiphany, that somehow my silence had contributed to this violence. You know, Yael, I had seen her work years before, and so she had posted something about the case. She had read it all the way in Montreal. And what I had seen of hers is a play called Amajuba, which is a testimonial play, which is actors are telling their own stories on stage. And I'd seen it years ago, and I had the impression of that had never left me. And so I wanted Yael to come to India and make a play like that, where we tell our own stories because... What is bandied around in India is a lot of statistics, right? There's like a certain percentage of children, certain percentage of rape, whatever. But everyone is too ashamed to tell their real stories. And so what happens when you tell the story behind rape, sexual assault, and gender-based violence? What happens to the conversation? Can we shift the shame so that we can end the violence? And Yael got on a plane with her child and quit her full-time job in Montreal and came and made this play. At five in the morning, her time, Yael received the note that you wrote to her. It reads, I'm a victim of sexual violence who has been silent all these years. By keeping quiet, I consider myself a part of what happened on that bus. Come here. Women in India are ready to break their silence and speak. There is no turning back. That's as direct of a call to action as I've ever read. Yeah, I think we all felt it, though. It's a very... The only thing that reminded me of it was Black Lives Matter, how all of us were called to answer and hold ourselves accountable for it. And so it's an amazing thing when you go through something individually, but also as a society. And nearby, the play happened, but there was so much activism around it that the laws changed a year later. The laws regarding and around rape that had been in place for decades changed in just that year. It changed while we were doing the play. Yael Farber creates work that uh, completely illuminates, and you feel her work viscerally. So although I'm telling my story of my sexual assault, you know, I often say this, that you don't watch Nirbhaya, you witness Nirbhaya because you are completely witnessing someone's truth. And when you see that, you can't turn away. And you are actually galvanized into action. So anytime we do this play night after night, there's a, there's a direct outcome out of it. Every night after every performance, we have so many of our audience members step up and break their own silences. So many continue to be activists in sexual violence, around sexual violence in their own lives and in their communities because of the play or because of what they saw. It's been years since we did the play, I think, almost seven years, and just a month ago, um, there was a woman who asked me to be on a podcast because she was breaking her silence because she had seen the play seven years ago. So the activism around it continues, and I think that's the power of art, that you can see something, you witness something, you witness someone's truth, and then you have to do something about it. A year into doing the play, you said, we were seeing how a system could be dismantled just by the power of truth. How shame could be shifted from the survivor to the perpetrator where it rightly belongs. I think great art follows Newton's third principle. It has a sort of luminosity to it that is in opposition to the darkness and may have been born out of. Yeah. When you're doing this show night after night, a show that features five women and five different stories, but is demanding so much from you, do you remember a performance where you felt like 
I don't know, something I'll never forget. Like, this was there a night? I'm sure there were many nights. There are many nights, yeah. I mean, there was, like, opening night, which was terrifying. And I think we had three audience members that night. We opened uh, where we rehearsed uh, in a little farm in India, in Delhi. Three people in the audience. Three people. And three, like, friendly, beautiful. Yeah, it was terrifying. Three people, but I'm also, like, looking for exits before, the, like, I'm like, I can't do this. Yeah, we can't, like, all of us, we were like, we can't do this. I don't want to do this. Um, yeah, just this. It happens every time I talk about the play. Something got you to walk up there, though. Yeah, I think, like, we live, before we live, like, our life between, like, you go towards things that feel good and you... Stay away from things that feel bad. And sometimes you, ha- you like, are called to do things that feel really horrible. And remain, like, doing Nirbhaya is, like, such a fucking pain in the ass. Because it's somehow for the good, right? You, you kind of... I guess I just want to back up, right? Because I cry every time I talk about it. It's really interesting because there's such a narrative around trauma that you, you experience it and then you recover from it. And and it's it's kind of so interesting to me that that's so incorrect, right? Like there's there's just trauma, and sometimes for some people you can just never come out of it. Like there's there's such a need to have a fairy tale um story around trauma. There's like you you want people to to come out of it, I guess. You know, the only fairy tale that makes sense to me is, is Humpty Dumpty, because you just you you. You just, you can never put yourself back together. Like, I'm always looking for some great glue. That's that's my journey in life, right? And I think there's such a need around sexual violence to recover from it. And I think it's one of the reasons why it's not taken that seriously. Because you can't see anything on the outside, right? It's deeply formative and it's deep, deeply toxic and it's deeply damaging. I am always confronted by how vulnerable I become around the subject I'm always confronted by it but I'm also kind of like this is it this is the flexion point in my life that will always remain soft once you've kind of reckoned with an injustice like this in your life and and activated yourself to do something it's definitely what connects me to other people's pain around different stuff the amount of people you inspired I don't know if that's why you got into acting but I I wondered how does that make you feel to like really engender a change in people for people to finally see themselves in a story? I think that's the reason why I wanted to leave acting because that wasn't happening within it, right? Back then in the 2000s, there was no needle being shifted by any of the roles I was doing. There's no purpose to me being an actor. It shifted a lot since then. You know, I'm so lucky to be acting at a time when Shows like The Night Of can make a dent in the conversation Islamophobia, where shows like Rami can just illuminate so wonderfully and beautifully someone who loves his faith and loves being in America and being young. I, as a show like Never Have I Ever, where young girls' rage, young brown girls' rage is totally embraced. I'm so lucky to live in this time. You were saying, when I started out acting, I couldn't find a purpose. And it sounded a lot like 
you at your ad agency feeling kind of rudderless. You were excelling, but you saw no rhyme or reason. When you come back to America after the night of, it seems in the last four years, you've been building out from the ground up your rhyme and reason for doing this work. Yeah, I mean, people have been doing it for me and I've stepped into that, right? I have made very smart choices, but it's been created by people of color for me. So it's that there's been kind of some terrific, authentic, moving, vulnerable, groundbreaking writing for people who look like me. One of the biggest performances you did is in um, Big Little Lies. You get this role as Katie Richmond. A year into doing it, you do an interview with NPR. There's a woman there who interviews you who says to you, Katie Richmond, how did you get a role like Katie Richmond? And you've said the implicit question there is, how did you get a role for a white person? A lot has changed in the last year, including my thinking, probably the interviewer's thinking as well. I always thought for me, when I looked at my career, I'm like, God, look how far I've come that I'm playing someone so different from me. And suddenly it's like, look how far we've come that I can play someone so close to me with never have I ever. And that shift just happened. I think the goal was for me not to play a South Asian character because it was so stereotyped. I am remembering this beautiful quote by Edward Plissant, and it says, we must clamor for the right to opacity for everyone. And this feeling that only white characters had that complexity and that opacity. Like I look at Mayor of Easttown and it feels like everything's underwater. It's so complex. And that actress of color has this, the writing feels so translucent and so obvious. And so what you see is what you get. You know, when you have a best friend of color on a show, they're just feeding the supporting person. It's just like it's all exposition. When you have a white best friend on a show, they're hiding a body <laughs> or the murder weapon or something. Sometimes literally. You know, like everyone is offered. Every every white character seems to have been offered so much complexity. So that's what I wanted. Not anymore. I think you would, would never have I ever. The, my conversation's completely changed. The show is immensely popular. And I think the show is for everyone, but it's especially for young people. And... It reminds me, or rather your work in this piece and what Mindy Kaling and everyone here is doing reminds me of this passage I wanted to sit with together. This is um, the writer Ta-Nehisi Coates last month on the Ezra Klein Show talking about why he's making the art he's making now. This is uh, rude to say, but there are people that I recognize I can never get to because their imagination is already formed. And when their imagination is formed, no, no amount of facts can dislodge them. The kids, however, the kids, you know, who are in the process of having their imagination formed, who are in the process of, you know, deciding or figuring, not even deciding, but being influenced in such a way to figure out, you know, what are the boundaries of, of, of humanity? That's an ongoing battle. And so, like, I think about you know, 2018, the movie Black Panther. And I think about seeing white kids dress up as the Black Panther. This sounds small. This sounds really, really small. And I want to be clear, there's a way in which this kind of, you know, symbolism certainly can be co-opted and not tied to, you know, any sort of material event. 
the symbols actually matter because they communicate something about the imagination. And in the imagination is where all of the policies happen. All the policy happens w- w- within there. But it, it really, really occurred to me that there's a generation that's being formed right now that's deciding what they will allow to be possible, what they will you know, be capable of imagining. And the root of that isn't necessarily, you know, the kind of, you know, journalism that I love that I was doing. The root of that is the stories we tell. And I I just, I, I wanted to be a part of that fight. What do you make of that? I think the term is called parasocial interaction, which is interaction with an imaginary character. And we do it in books, right? I used to read Little Women and the character of Joe or, or Enid Blyton, the character of George. These women who just defy all this stuff. And although that really was in my life, you, you start forming a friendship and you start forming a way of being because they exist or they exist in your life in some way. I often think, you know, because I live only in New York and L.A., it's not my reality. My reality is is different, but there are lots of people who will not meet characters like the Vishwakumars in in their lives, in their in day-to-day interactions, right? They may meet an Indian person when they go to the hospital or whatever, but there's a lack of understanding of, of who we are fundamentally. I so believe in the power of media and the power of television because it has the power to tell audiences these are the stories that matter by centering them, and these are the stories that don't matter by putting them in the fringes, and we've always been putting being put in the fringes. And I think by centering the story, it means so much to little girls of color that they can see themselves in it, but also for people not for white people to form an emotional bond with Davy and with her family and with her friends. It means more than. You could possibly know. You know, I am I'm, I'm, I an immigrant mom, and I play an immigrant mom. And between my husband, Mohan, and Kamala, we, we're, we're, for, we're an immigrant family. I, I do believe that the portrayals change people's perception of immigrants, which is such a hotly debated subject. You know, I, I read this report long, a long time ago, which is positive portrayals of people like us actually galvanize people into action. That quote is very resonant to me. It is not only for audiences, it's it's also for me. Like, I think media and the show has kind of willed myself into being as well. You know, audiences are definitely demanding that they be reflected back. But I also, I guess I've been demanding it, and, and I finally... It's an amazing thing to see. I mean, as silly as I just remember this one scene, I asked Lang Fisher, I'm, I'm pa- in one scene I'm packing for India, and I asked the writer, Lang, to, to write in that everyone should sit on the suitcase when I uh, zip it up. And she's like, why would you sit on a suitcase? And I, and I realized that maybe not everyone sits on a suitcase, but immigrants sit on their suitcase because the suitcase is so stuffed that all the kids from the neighborhood know that when they come to the house, you sit in the suitcase and you zip it up because your, you know, your your suitcase is so laden with gifts. And when you come back, it's so laden with all that yummy stuff and, you know, pickles that you're bringing back. You just know you just sit on a suitcase. So, yeah, I think it comes back to how amazing for young girls to be able to see a character like Davy and 
see that everything that they've been feeling and doing is okay and normalized for the first time. You know, especially as a girl of color, you're, especially as, as, as not a girl, a child of color, you are so often unseen. And I think, you know, I, it's hard for me to describe what it means to be seen to a person who may not have ever felt the absence of it. But I do think it's a lifeline. Now that you do feel seen, how does it feel at 48? It's really hard to go back to anything else. It's a real calling to step up and produce your own things because you can't go back into the way that things were. I cannot be best friend of color anymore. I, 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 I squirm at that. It's not who I am. It is. I am, I am you know, a best friend to many. But um, I, I, I think Viola Davis said it, but, you know, um, it, we're no one's sidekick for sure. And the quote you just read, it, once it's happened, you can't really go back. Once it's made possible, it's hard to go back. Someone asked you once, do you ever think about directing and producing your own projects? You said, I think about it all the time. The trap you fall into as an actor is that you can wait your life away. It will happen soon. That line, you can wait your life away. After this year that we've had, do you feel like that wait is over? It'd be silly to think the wait is over. I do see myself producing and have begun the process, but it's it's coming from a place of what you just said. It's it's because it's hard for me to imagine taking a step back into projects which are not as luminous as, say, this one in terms of just character, right? And I just want to clarify, a project like Rami, where I just did two episodes, was hugely luminous for me. So it's not the amount of time. You know, I, I spoke in that same interview about screen time versus scene time, which is something I really believe in, which is actors of color have more and more screen time. So they are in scenes more. They are cast more. Especially with the the year coming out, you know, I've, I've I've seen that firsthand. But their scene time remains low. The uh, their arcs remain underdeveloped, and as a result, the audience knows they're on screen but doesn't really see them. We don't really we we don't get a understanding of who these characters really are. We're still serving the central lines of usually the the white protagonist. And so my first love is to be an actor, and perhaps it teaches a lot of patience. You are in waiting a lot. But I, I read this quote, which is, I, I think the freedom is, is not the freedom to choose, it's the freedom to create. I do know I'm stepping into a zone where I do have more and more freedom to create. In that same interview, you said, as a result, the audience doesn't fully see us. They don't get the three-dimensional versions of us, and it's that version that moves the needle. That's the version that can create empathy, understanding, and change. And the whole point of getting you from Mar Vista to Highland Park was that hopefully people do understand and see you just a little bit better. Thank you. It's been an amazing interview. Thank you so much. Porna Jagannathan, thank you very much.
And that's our show. Special thanks this week to Natasha Desai and the team at Full Coverage. I'd also like to thank Purna Jagannathan. You can watch her in the new season of Never Have I Ever, streaming on Netflix. To learn more about her and her work, visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd encourage you to seek out past talks with Hassan Minaj, Janelle Monet, Laura Dern, Uzo Aduba, Matthew McConaughey, Chumpa Lahiri, Ocean Vuong, Titus Burgess, and Jenny Slade. You can find all of those and more on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you do your listening. If you'd like to join our mailing list, drop me a line at talkeasypod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at talkeasypod. And as always, our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producers are Caitlin Dryden and Nikki Spina. Our lead editor is Andre Lin. Our editor for today's episode is Joshua Siegel. Our assistant editors are Eve Gershon, Caitlin Dryden, and Clarice Guevara. Special thanks to Callie Syringus, Kaylin Ung, Patrice Lee, and Grace Perkins. Illustrations by Krishna Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Orion Wong, Ian Jones, Isabel Primavera, and Ethan Seneca. I'd also like to thank Tim Moore out of York Recording here in Los Angeles, California. And of course, the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. We're back next week with Lord. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.